Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 19th, 2020, and this is show number 780. Well, because he absolutely hates it when I do this, I'm going to say happy birthday to my husband, Steve. He has a birthday coming up tomorrow, and uh, I wish him all the best. But before I get started into the show, I need to make a correction on the pricing of the Kubo AI camera I reviewed last week. I told you it was normally $300 and was $50 off, so it was down to $250. When the lovely folks at Kubo saw my article, they explained that the Amazon price of $250 was before the $50 off coupon. So this fabulous AI camera set up with three different uh, hardware configurations is $200, not $250. Well, this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond was of the Programming by Stealth variety. I know I've been saying that this, uh, this a lot lately, but it was a spectacularly fun episode. In the early days of Programming by Stealth, Bart tried to explain JavaScript classes, objects, and instances. He talked about it in installment 17 before ES6 came out, and then he took another run at it in installments 27 through 31. But it never felt to Bart like he had explained it in a way that made it clear. And I came away thinking I was really dumb because I could not figure it out. I could, you know, I would get brief pieces of it that seemed to make sense, but it just didn't stick. It didn't make any sense to me. And and it's kind of part of the fundamentals of object-oriented programming. So it's a pretty important concept. Well, in this most recent episode in installment 94, Bart finally nails it. I told him the show notes for this installment might be the best he's ever done. Everything he explains is clear and concise. The examples are superb, and we get to stay hooniacker a lot, so that's fun. Instead of being frustrated and confused, I was smiling through this episode because I finally get it. I also told him that I feel far less stupid than I did before because I always thought it was my feeling that I didn't get it. I enjoyed this so much, I drew Bart a picture of what he had taught me, and he said I nailed it. As always, you can listen to your podcatcher of choice by searching for Programming by Stealth, or you can listen at podfeet.com. And of course, make sure to read along with Bart's spectacular tutorial show notes over at pbs.bartificer.net. Well, I did something really crazy this week. I recorded not one, but two Chit Chat Across the Ponds. I also recorded a Chit Chat Across the Pond Lite with Micah Sargent of the Clockwise Podcast and the Twit Network. A while ago, Micah was talking on some show somewhere about how much he loves Text Expander, and I thought it might be fun to have a session where we talked about our favorite Text Expander snippets. We found that we actually use the same Text Expander trigger character, but in different ways. We discussed our most used snippets and why. Micah told me about some very cool text expander snippets Brett Terpstra has shared with the world at brettterpstra.com. We talked about how cool we think the public group snippets are that you can download from app.textexpander.com. We talked about Micah's favorite uh, accented words like voila and the emoji cheat sheet so he can type poop with, uh, with a text expander snippet and also symbols like the shift key. And also he uses text utilities that he's also downloaded a snippet library for. Anyway, we even covered nested snippets and the problems those solve. Go check this episode out in your podcatcher of choice by searching for Chit Chat Across the Pond Light. And of course, you can always listen over at podfeet.com and look for the episode with Micah Sargent on his favorite text expander snippets. Hello, it's Jill from the North Woods. It's time to watch TV and movies. When I had a DVR, 
I would keep track of shows and movies I wanted to see by recording them. It's been three years since I canceled cable and moved to streaming everything. I'm not talented enough to ride my own database, so I use two apps to keep my queue in order. The first is called Television Time. It provides a list of all shows available and allows you to add them to your queue as a series. It gives you a small description of the show and indicates which networks they air. There are some minor details about the cast and other similar shows. There are links for reviews. As you watch an episode, you check it off the list. The list syncs on iCloud or Tracked if you're using multiple devices. You can sort the queue by episode count, air date, the shows you last watched. In the other tab, you can watch shows and how many days they until they air again. The shows are coming back but have no air date are marked as returning or ended. It's fun to see what's coming soon. For upcoming shows, I can sort by network, alphabetical order, air date, and last watched. To keep the cost of streaming low, I cancel networks when I have no pending shows. I use the network sort to know which streaming services to keep or to give up. There is a search and a list of popular, trending, and anticipated shows. There's also a few stats. It doesn't have a social media aspect to it where I can see the other users' reviews. I'm not really looking for that either. I like it because it's simple. The only downside I've seen with the app is the confusion when a show is from another country. It displays that the show is available, but it's not available in my country. Also, if a show comes from a network that is still on television, but later appears on streaming networks, You can't find the show by that streaming network. It doesn't have a strong set of reviews, as some of the other apps do, because of the missing features and the missing social aspect. But it works well as my TVQ. It is only on iOS and costs $3. Televisiontime.app, you'll find more information about it. The second app is Just Watch. This is more focused on movies and streaming shows. The primary function is to create an account and a watch list, and you indicate what streaming services you have. There are some nice options to split services like Amazon Prime from Amazon Video, which may require a payment. The level of detail is nice. You can filter the watch list by streaming services. It shows some basic information from their database and from Rotten Tomatoes and Internet Movie Database. You can also see what's popular on the app from other users. It also tries to guess what you'll like based on what you liked in the past. You can also see what's new to the streaming services. You can watch trailers for movies. It has a lot of filters. If you want to find movies that are free or well-rated, or dozens of other filters like category, it's very easy to do. I don't really use the show for TV shows because you can mark an entire season on your watch list but you don't really check off individual episodes. If a show is airing on a network, there's no indicator where that show came from, so I can only find it on streaming services. In the end, I find it great for movies and clunky for series. It is available on iOS and Android and is free. There is also a Fire TV app. If you load the app on your device, you can connect it to your account or use it as a standalone app. It will show you your watch list or look through the services you have and find shows to watch. And if you select something, it will open it up in the right app on the Fire Stick. That's pretty fantastic. 
They have a website you can use instead of the app. Find out more at justwatch.com. The third app I tinker with, but I don't really use on a regular basis. It's called TV Time, which is a bit confusing with television time. It does both movies and series. It helps you find new shows. It lets you check off episodes of shows and movies you watch. It has a fun social aspect with comments, reviews, and the ability to follow other users. It really is fun. It shows you memes from the shows and comments about the movies and episodes. The community is active. It has a nice calendar layout. But it doesn't really have many filters or sorts. I just look at it when I'm looking for new shows or I thought something was really interesting and I wanted to see what other people thought of it. It is a website and also has an iOS and Android app for free. Check it out at tvtime.com for more details. In the end, I'm very happy with the two apps I have. I could see people wanting the ability to watch shows and movies as a family. Each person in the family can have their own app with their own lists, but having something that would keep track of the shows together for a family would be nice. None of these apps do that. But for me alone, it works out really well. I hope this helps you to watch and enjoy TV, series, and movies. You know what? I love Jill's reviews. She's got the perfect combination of the problem to be solved, very specific details without droning on and on, and a light touch of humor throughout. I do need to make one tiny correction, though. The price of television time, the first iOS app she described is $5 in the the App Store, not $3. I think it changed since she set it up. Anyway, that's the app I think I'm going to buy to see if it's better than Steve and my Airtable database. But I got to tell you, that's going to be hard to beat because we sure love it. I have never been good at time zones, probably because of my poor arithmetic skills caused by new math in the 1960s. There's an eight involved in a subtraction situation like GMT minus eight, then I am doomed. Turns out Bart and I are eight hours apart in time zones, so that's swell. I also have a lot of trouble with things like daylight saving time. Just the phrase, you know, people say, oh, it's easy, spring forward, fall back. It baffles me. I get all tangled up on whether I'm moving forward in time or is the clock moving forward or maybe it's both and one's in one direction. I don't know. It got even more complicated when the U.S. decided, in their infinite wisdom, to change to and from daylight saving time at a different time than the rest of the world. So that means Bart and I are eight hours apart, then seven for a while, then back to eight, and then seven again, and then back to eight. It absolutely drives me bananas. And don't even get me started with New Zealand. Since they're in the Southern Hemisphere, they go into summer at the opposite time, so we swing wildly apart and closer together by multiple hours. Trying to figure out if Marianne or Alistair are awake or if it's possibly the following Tuesday is impossible. I have been complaining on the NoSilicast about time zones since August of 2009 in episode number 219. So, it's all the rage to talk about time using GMT or UTC, but I find even that confusing. Did you know that Greenwich, after which Greenwich Mean Time, GMT is named, does not stay at GMT zero during daylight saving time? My buddy Ron had been to Greenwich, and when I told him that, he did not believe me. He lost his mind when he found out I was right. It's not that GMT itself changes, it's that Britain changes to some goofy thing called British Summertime. And then there's Coordinated Universal Time, which is for some reason abbreviated UTC. They really do hate us, don't they? Why do we have GMT and UTC? What is the difference between the two? According to worldtimeserver.com, 
It says, and I quote, in short, GMT is an actual time zone where UTT, I'm sorry, whereas UTC is a time standard that is used to keep time synchronized across the world. So UTC is an absolute reference point to keep all clocks in sync. Then why do people give their time zones in UTC if it's not for time zones? Maybe because you can refer to your time zone as an offset from UTC? Well, perhaps this explanation from Wikipedia would clarify things. They say, the time zone using UTC is sometimes denoted UTC plus or minus 00, 00 or by the letter Z, a reference to the equivalent nautical time zone, GMT, which has been denoted by a Z since about 1950. Okay, that really helped. Anyway, I will, from this day forward, refuse to ever use UTC as a time zone. Just avoid some nerd saying to me, well, actually, UTC means universal, coordinated universal time. Anyway, moving on. Why am I bringing all of this up right now and repeating a lot of what I said in 2009? Because our latest assignment in Programming by Stealth is to create a web app for a clock that shows the local time as well as in a time zone of the user's choosing. I talked about my early success for this assignment in my recent article, Programming is My Happy Place. Believe it or not, creating the local time was pretty darn easy. Turns out that people write libraries that you just point to in your code and they give you superpowers. The, ones we're, the one we're using is called moment.js from momentjs.com. Once you've got it slapped into your code, you can do all kinds of fun stuff with times. It's also a really fun assignment because uh, Bart lets us be completely creative in designing our own interface. Pretty quickly and without bothering Dorothy at all this time, I was able to get the user's local time and it was nice and pretty. Phase two was to add some checkboxes so the user could choose whether to show seconds or not and whether to show a 24 or 12 hour clock. That was a little more challenging, but I got that done on my own too. But then it came time to design the interface to allow the viewer to change time zones. I decided to create a nice little drop-down menu to scroll through to pick the time zone. And this is when things started to get interesting. And by that, I mean in the Chinese proverb, maybe you have interesting times kind of way. All right, using this swell library I mentioned before, moment.js, there's a companion library called timezones.js. This library is really cool. You can easily change the time to and from a different time zone, find times in the past and future, and I think you can find time on like other planets. I mean, it does all kinds of things. I do get kind of lost on how many things it can do. But I only needed a simple drop-down list of cities, and then when you pick a city, it would do the magic time zone math in the background, and I wouldn't have to do anything but spit it out back on screen and not worry my pretty little head about it. Sounded easy enough. Well, the fine folks who wrote timezones.js have instructions on how to get a list of cities and countries, or cities slash countries, I should say, that are supported. I only have to type moment.tz.names, and it spits out the list. Easy peasy. But there's a problem. It spit out 493 cities. Can you imagine how annoying that drop-down menu would be? I bet you can't, because it's worse than you can imagine. Way worse. The city names are listed by continent and then city. For example, every city that is in North or South America is pre-labeled with America. So I guess it's not even continent. It's, it's two continents in that case. So as you're scrolling through the Americas, Bogota is right next to Boise. Chicago is next to Chihuahua. I know that makes sense alphabetically, but if you're looking for Bogota, is that where you would expect to find it? The good news is that Bart taught us to use regular expressions so I could strip out the continent and only have the city names and I could alphabetize them properly. But you'd still have 493 names to go through 
And that would kind of be nonsense because what if the name you're looking for isn't there? You There isn't anything near it alphabetically that would be in the same time zone. I'm not the only one who's ever tried to solve this problem. So certainly someone has a nicer list that I can plop into my drop-down menu. All I needed to do was search the internet for a nice visual listing that made sense to the user. And then all I would need to do is map into the time zones my library understood. I spent four days looking for such a list. I really wanted to get programming, but I needed a nice list first. At one point I got desperate and I brought up one of those maps that shows the time zones and bands and the little red dots for cities you could tap on within a time zone. I probably spent an hour trying to find one recognizable city name in each time zone while also not picking just the big countries. You know, I didn't want all U.S. cities for the half time, a half dozen time zones that we have. That would be nice. It took me a while to realize that this was not going to end in a good list, as in many cases, I couldn't even find a city in certain time zones. Finally, I found a list that was way better than the 493 oddly sorted continent slash city names. I found a list of only 424 city names, but at least they were sorted by country. All of the U.S. was next to each other under the two-character code U.S., all of Africa was under ZW because that makes sense, and it, you know, but at least it was sorted that way. It wasn't ideal, but at least it made sense. I gleefully coded it up, and when it was morning in Japan, I excitedly sent it to Kaylee. While she didn't technically call it horse poop, she was not at all impressed. She did not like that list. Later in the day, when Helm in the Netherlands woke up, I got the same reaction. I was crestfallen. I was so proud of my work. Of course, they were right. It was still ugly and unintuitive. Now, Helma's a crazy good programmer, and she helpfully suggested, she said, just let people type in the name of a city, then you look it up in the background by latitude and longitude, figure out if it's summer or winter there, and then calculate the time. (laughs) Yeah, I was totally not going to do that. The error checking alone on people's spellings of typing things in or duplicates, that would have killed me. Well, Kaylee did some searching online for me for a better list, and she actually found one that worked. It was released as open source on GitHub by someone who goes by the name NodeSocket. Here's what was good about the NodeSocket list. It had the name of the time zone, such as GMT-3, followed by a handful of names for that time zone. But it was still harder than I thought. The pretty list would only work for the visuals of the dropdown. I would need to map those chosen time zones in the dropdown to a real city name in the official time zone library. I had to select a city name in a zone from the pretty list and then do a search in the official time zone library and see if I had a match. For example, for GMT-12, it said Inuak and Kwajalein. Anybody know where the heck those cities are? (laughs) Me neither. To get the time zone library to understand the time the user wanted, I needed something like a continent or a region followed by a slash and the real city name in quotes. So I had to copy Inuak, Inuitak, I don't know how to say that, Inuitak from this fancy new list and see if it was anywhere in that 493 line long list. Nope. Look again. Copy Kwajalein from the pretty list. Check the official list. And it was there. Great. One time zone mapping done. Rinse and repeat 23 more times to get every time zone. While this was tedious work, I only needed to find any city match from one list to the other and then my time zone library would work out the rest. Sometimes, though, none of the city names in the pretty list had a match in the time zone library. I had to use some more rigorous methods. I actually had to paste the name of a city from the pretty list into a maps application to figure out where it was and see if I could find a city nearby that would be in the same time zone. That made each time zone its own little adventure game. 
As I worked my way through the Times and then the Pretty List, I noticed that the city of Caracas was listed under two different offsets. It was in GMT minus four and GMT minus 430. I know I whine a lot about time zones and such, but I don't care who you are. That's bananas, right? Or a mistake. Well, if you ask the internet what time it is in a city, you'll find that about 238,427 different websites are available to try and untangle the mystery of time for you. I searched for the answer of what time is it in Caracas? I got two hits and I thought they were particularly interesting. Timeanddate.com said it was 5.08 p.m., while thetimenow.com said it was 4.38 p.m., off by a half an hour. That's pretty curious. I mentioned this curiosity to Kaylee, and she found an article from 2016 on timeanddate.com that may explain the confusion. The article said, quote, In late 2007, President Hugo Chavez moved Venezuela's time zone 30, minute back, 30 minutes backwards to UTC minus 4.30, putting all of the country in a half-hour time zone. The change was perceived as a political statement by Chavez, and when Venezuela changes its time in May, remember this is a 2007 article, or I'm sorry, a 2016 article, when it changes its time in May, there will be no other locations in this UTC offset. Now, I'm not 100% sure how the person making the pretty list knew that Venezuela had moved back to on the hour, but also forgot to remove Caracas from the half hour offset. I decided to go with on the hour for Caracas for my web app, and I hope you're okay with that. By the way, half-hour time zone offsets aren't that unusual. I don't know how to pronounce this at all. T-A-I-O-H-A-E, an island out in the South Pacific, is on the half-hour, along with eight other regions, and the entire country of India is on a half-hour. Found that one out when we visited there a few years ago. But my favorites are the ones that are off by 45 minutes. I mean, really, you have to hate people to do something like that. Kathmandu in Nepal, where we also visited, Eucla in Australia, and the wee little Chatham Islands out in the Pacific off of New Zealand also enjoy 45-minute offsets. I cannot imagine having to do time math living there. There's one more abnormal abnormality to this whole thing. I cannot show you what time it is in one specific time zone. That time zone is called Mid-Atlantic, and it's GMT minus two. My node socket list says simply Mid-Atlantic with no cities. I didn't immediately give up on GMT minus two, though. I did some sleuthing. If we go back to our friend timeanddate.com, which has a swell map showing time zones and red dots for cities, you can see a couple of red dots out in GMT minus two. If you hover over the dots, you can find out the names of the cities, like Ponta Delgada, way out in the Atlantic, 900 miles off the coast of Portugal. Fun fact to know and tell, it's the capital city of the Azores. But guess what? They've decided they don't want to be in that lonely GMT minus two. They went with plain old GMT with no offset, even though they're nowhere near in line with GMT. I don't know, maybe it's because Portugal owns them. Back to GMT minus two, we've also got Praia, the capital city of the island country Cabo Verde, sitting right there, ready to claim ownership of this lonely time zone. But for no reason I could find, they're on GMT minus one instead of GMT minus two. And then I finally found one tiny little spot called King Edward Point on South Georgia Island in the South Sandwich Islands, which is actually in GMT minus two. But here's the problem. If it's not acknowledged in the time zones library, then I can't access it. 
I was thinking I might write a little error check that says if someone picks GMT minus two, then hardwire in King Edward Point as being one hour ahead or behind the latest, the closest time zone. I'd have to put an asterisk all over it because who on earth knows if they honored daylight saving time? Now, here's a questionable fact about this place. The only town I could find on South Georgia Island is called, here's another tough one to pronounce, Gritaviken. It's an abandoned whaling village. It no longer has any permanent residents. But if you zoom in on it on Google Maps, it shows it has a Starbucks and a McDonald's. Why do I suspect someone is having fun with Google on this one? Well, after I wrote up this glorious solution, I, pu- I published the blog post and I spammed Twitter, our Facebook group, and our Slack community at podfeet.com Slack. I was exhausted but happy with a relatively simple dropdown that gave valuable information to the user in a concise list. I'm really glad I published these blog posts before I talk about them on the podcast with my discoveries because it's very hard to fix a podcast. Nuclear John and our Slack community said... You know, for some reason, Central and Eastern time in your clock are reporting the same time. I checked his screenshots and I was able to replicate this error myself. I'm sure many of you have been hollering into your devices at the complete and utterly obvious flaw in the path I took to simplify the list. I took one city in each time zone and I made it the definitive source of the time. But it turns out that Lima, the city I chose for Eastern, doesn't observe daylight saving time as the at the same time as other GMT minus five cities. My entire logic was completely flawed. The time I was showing in Lima was correct for Lima, but it was not correct for U.S. cities in the same GMT offset. Well, the only way to do this right is to show you all of the cities in every time zone or to choose for you which cities you're allowed to query and have no general assumptions to be made. I went back to the library, I had it spit out all of the cities, and I actually used Excel to format the data. I know, I know, I should have used regular expressions, but I know how to do multiple modifications at once in Excel. I pulled in the data to a single column, I used text to columns to get just the bit I wanted, then I added columns with the common information for each element, like comma, space, quote, name, quote, comma, and then I concatenated the city names and the GMT offset column with columns with the other formatting stuff. Of course, then I had to do a copy-paste special and only keep the values so that it was strings and not formulas. From there, I exported it as a comma-separated value CSV file, and I was able to make it into a nice JSON file by adding the square brackets around all the data to make it an array. Totally easy, right? Then I noticed that the official list had a a whole bunch of entries that said ETC slash GMT, ETC slash GMT plus zero, ETC slash GMT zero, ETC slash GMT plus zero again. It went on and on and on like that. I deleted all of those because I figured the list was long enough. When I was finished, remember I said 493? Now it's 539 cities sorted by GMT offset. I do hope you appreciate the exhaustive links I've gone to in order to ensure the veracity of the data behind my clock web app and to bring you a list that makes sense and at least is easy to scroll through to find the time zone you seek. I would also like to point out that I think it's ironic that I said that I love Jill's articles because she doesn't drone on and on and on about one topic, but hey, it's my show. I can do it any way I want. Anyway, now that I have this thing finally done, my clock gives the right time in all the time zones. I'm really sad that the list is kind of a lie. If you choose GMT minus eight from my list, you will find the time in Los Angeles. But right now, we're not at GMT minus eight. 
We're at GMT minus seven because of daylight saving time. Some places aren't in daylight saving time right now, so their GMT offsets might be right. I know there's not an easier way to show this, but it still feels like I'm misleading the people looking at it. Everyone I've shown it to says I shouldn't worry about it because everyone does it, but it still bothers me. I got to tell you, I'm having a ball writing this web app, and if you'd like to watch it as I'm working at it on it, I put a link in the show notes to it over on glitch.me. If you want to watch something really entertaining, please watch the YouTube video Nuclear John posted, and I've got a link to that in the show notes too. It's called The Problem with Time and Time Zones by Computerfile. It is an absolutely hysterical and completely accurate explanation of the madness that is working with time and time zones. Well, I've got one more thing about this time zone thing. When I was working on the time zone nonsense of my clock, and while I was writing up that article, I was talking to Alistair Jenks in New Zealand on Telegram. I mentioned that my earliest memory of him contributing to the show was when he did an article about time zones for the Nocilla Castaways. It was about, a, I don't know, 100 years ago. I distinctly remembered listening to it while we were driving around in Hawaii. The best part about this recording that Alistair made back then was that Alistair was 100% sincere that he thinks it's making it easy to do time zone changes in your head. And and I got to tell you, I remember us driving along and I was just laughing hysterically because the longer he went on, the more insane it sounded. Well, remember I said that I've been complaining about these uh, time zones and things since 2009? That was when he sent this article. Anyway, thanks to the magic of search in Gmail, he was able to find the article and his original recording from August of 2009. And Alistair and I thought it would be really fun to play it back to you right now. Now, perhaps you're going to be on his side and think, wow, it's so simple the way he explains it. Or perhaps you'll be like me thinking he must be joking. Hi, Alison. Alistair here from New Zealand. I've noticed in a few recent episodes of Nasilicast that you and others have had a little trouble with time zones, so I'd like to offer you some advice on how to deal with them easily. While most people understand what time zones are and why they exist, many people have a lot of trouble working with them. I know because I used to be one of them. My father flew many transport missions around the globe for the Royal New Zealand Air Force, a job which demanded mastery of time zones, as some airports closed down overnight and if you arrived an hour early, you had nowhere to land. He taught me the easy way to deal with time zones. Most people try to work out the difference between their own time zone and another. If you only deal with one other time zone, that's not too hard. If you start to deal with two or more, it gets confusing real fast. The trick is to always work through GMT. Let's ignore daylight saving time for now. It's a complication we will add back in at the end. Here in Wellington, New Zealand, our one national time zone is GMT plus 12. If it's midnight GMT, it's lunchtime in Wellington. Head to Southern California and you have GMT minus 8 in LA. So when it is midnight GMT, it is 4pm in LA. From this, we can also see that 4pm in LA is lunchtime in Wellington. Now remember, we go through GMT, so we have to go west 20 hours from Wellington, which is 12 on the plus side of GMT and 8 on the minus side, to reach LA. So lunchtime in Wellington is 4pm the previous day in LA. This explains why my US tech news sources are very quiet on my Monday. They're all out enjoying the last hours of their weekend. Let's throw in a third location in the form of Perth, Australia. Australian Western Standard Time is GMT plus 8. So at midnight GMT, it's 8am in Perth. Now let's remember, Wellington is GMT plus 12, LA is GMT minus 8, and now Perth is GMT plus 8. Now you can begin to see how easily we can compare any two time zones. 
LA at GMT minus 8 and Perth at GMT plus 8 make Perth lead LA by 16 hours. Perth at GMT plus 8 and Wellington at GMT plus 12 make Wellington lead Perth by 4 hours. Easy. So far we've remembered three numbers for three locations and we can work out three time differences. Let's add a fourth and we'll soon see why this method works so well. The Big Apple, New York, New York. Out there on the eastern seaboard and still ignoring daylight saving, they like to run their clocks at GMT minus 5. Let's recap our four numbers. Wellington at GMT plus 12, Perth at GMT plus 8, New York at GMT minus 5 and LA at GMT minus 8. Let's sit in New York and compare ourselves to other cities. New York to LA, 3 hours ahead, which is minus 5 to minus 8. New York to Perth, 13 hours behind, minus 5 to plus 8. New York to Wellington, 17 hours behind, minus 5 to plus 12. By adding just one more number for New York, we can now easily deal with three more city pairs. Add more cities to your list and the number of pairs you can easily deal with skyrockets. Now, daylight saving. It is a pain. My best advice is do not talk to people in other time zones in March, September or October. Working out when to apply daylight saving is a heck of a challenge. The only way to do it is to do your research and stay up to date. Numerous countries have changed their rules in recent years to keep us on our toes. However, while knowing when to apply it is a PhD course, how to apply it is easy peasy. If any city or cities in the pair you're calculating are observing daylight saving, just add one to their number. Daylight saving puts Wellington from GMT plus 12 to GMT plus 13. New York does its summer months at GMT minus 5 plus 1, i.e. GMT minus 4. The actual difference between Wellington and New York right now can be worked out from the wintertime Wellington's GMT plus 12 and the summertime New York's GMT minus 4. So in fact New York is currently 16 hours behind Wellington. Be sure to just remember New York is GMT minus 5 and add in the extra one when you need it. No need to remember two numbers for one city. To my knowledge, all countries' rules add one hour whenever daylight saving is observed. So there you have it, time zones made easy. If you use certain city pairs a lot, you may well learn the time difference itself, but never forget those GMT offsets and you'll never be stuck again. Well, even with the complication of daylight saving, you can never be more than two hours out. So no excuses for those 2am phone calls. Yeah, so <laughs> totally simplified it. You're talking to somebody who can't subtract if there's an eight in it, and you're talking about the day after tomorrow in another state or another country. Anyway, I appreciate your efforts, Alistair, and I'm sure you're completely sincere that it's easy for you, but it's not easy for me. Well, if you've been listening for any length of time, you know that this show is not sponsored by advertising. It's sponsored by you through weekly pledges of uh, Patreon and one-off donations through PayPal. A massive percentage of people don't have disposable incomes right now. And I 100% understand that and don't want you to feel bad at all if you can't help out. In fact, you may have disposable income right now, but are making the choice to support your local food bank. And I 1000% support that as well. And then there's some people like April Mendez who heard about Amazon dropping my affiliate status and decided to double her pledge on Patreon. It's been heartwarming to hear the support from many of you about Amazon, but, you know, I'm not mad at them and I don't hold any hard feelings. They've done a lot of stuff to actually reduce the uh, advertising and, and uh, the affiliate prices that they're paying, too. So something else is going on here, I think. I still love Amazon. A little disappointed, but it's fine. 
Anyway, April is a rock star, as are all of you who contribute by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon or podfeet.com slash PayPal and donate what you can to help pay the bills around here. Hey, look at the good news. With conventions being called off right and left, my costs are going to go down quite a bit, so it's not that big of a deal. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Boosh Shots. Feel like I just talked to you yesterday, Bart. It feels like less than 24 hours ago because it is. (laughs) We just did a really fun uh, programming by stealth, but I will have already talked about that on the show. So we should probably stick in and have some fun with security. Indeed we shall. Well, I'm going to start in the most uncomfortable of places, but the most important place to visit, Correction Corner. Um, (laughs) I always say you judge any content by whether or not they correct themselves when they get something wrong. And I'm going to eat my own dog food and say I got something mildly wrong last time. So... We talked about the iPad Pro having a physical cutoff switch on the microphone, so when you lock the screen, the microphone is disconnected. And you asked me, what, so like a physical disconnect? And I said, yeah. Mm, ish. <laughs> okay. Effectively, yes, because it solves the same problem a physical disconnect solves, but it doesn't solve it by having a physical wire move apart with air molecules in between. Um, so the, the problem to be solved is that you do not want the software that is running your OS controlling the microphone, because then if it's hacked or if there's a bug or if there's malware, if the OS isn't controlled and the OS's control could be subverted and the microphone could be surreptitiously enabled. So you need the OS running the device not to be in control. And uh, the easiest way to do that would obviously be a physical switch, right? When the magnets go click, the wire is physically disconnected. And that's what I thought Apple had done. No, what they've done instead is they have control of the microphone in the T2 chip, which is a separate computer in the same housing. So the OS has no control over it. Therefore, it achieves the same end in a different way. So it's not physical. It is still electronic, but it's not hackable because the OS you can hack is not the OS controlling the microphone. So the OS can ask the T2 questions. Yes. But one thing but the OS can't do make is tell... It do something. Correct. And the, the, okay. the OS has no control over the microphone cutoff switch. That is entirely in the domain of the T2. It does not in any way expose that functionality. So the T2 also stores private keys. And so you can hand it... So it spits out the public key and it keeps the private key. So you can hand it information to encrypt with your private key and it will take the information in encrypt it and hand it back out. But at no point does a private key ever come out of a T2 chip. That's one of its magic things. And in this case, nothing about the microphone cutoff comes out of the T2 switch. Okay. So, you know, as a mechanical engineer, I approve this message because things that move break. That is a really good point, actually. Yes. And yes, it achieves the security end without the risk of having to go to Apple and say, yeah, my microphones are not working. Oh, yeah, it's because there's little... Tiny, tiny, tiny switch we put into this paper thin device. Yeah, you're right. It's probably right. You better. banged it once, and it and or or the other way around. It's always connected and never disconnects. Well, yeah, actually, that would be even worse for me. Either way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, yeah, in the end, I was wrong, but Apple did the right thing. Good to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So follow up. Next bit of follow up. Uh, Zoom. Um, we talked last time about how. You know, on the whole, Zoom seemed to be doing an awful lot better this time around than last summer when they first encountered some issues. And I think we, oh, came we, to the... we talked about the dumpster fire parts, too, though. 
Well, we mentioned that last summer they had been a dumpster fire. And that, thank goodness, this time around they were behaving in a much more positive and adult manner. Um, okay, your memory is different than mine, because I remember us talking through all of the different things that they had been caught with their pants down being lazy or uh, or dishonest. Like, they were still claiming that it was end-to-end encryption, things like that. And that they were fixing those things. We were optimistic it was getting better, but it was actually yeah. not good. Okay, but we were in the, okay. Well, I was saying that they had been really quick to patch these security vulnerabilities, and that they were they had put a ninety day freeze on new features so they could focus on getting everything yeah, ship shape. Right. It was I was positive. Forward. You may have been more negative forward. than I was, ironically. <laughs> but anyway, the point being, it's now been two weeks, and obviously, one would hope progress would be good. I am happy to say that is exactly what has happened. So. Last time we were relieved that Glenn Fleischman over at Tidbits had done the really hard work of cataloguing every single problem, what it meant, what Zoom were doing, and what you, the end user, needed to do about it, if anything. And it was, thank goodness he had done it, or our security medium would have been, ooh, so difficult to write. Uh, Well, he has now written a follow-up piece just in time for this week's show notes. Um, And basically he goes through everything Zoom have done since to say, look, here's been their response in the last two weeks. And basically it's looking really good. So the headline he gave it is Zoom repairs flaws and improves privacy. Which is interesting because another story is that uh, Google has banned Zoom from company owned computers because of the problems. Yeah. It's good that they're doing the right thing. I wonder whether Google pulled the switch a little early. Yeah, that's just politics. That's I mean, there were countries doing that as well. That That's just mob mentality silliness. Why do you think so? I mean, because that's imprudent based on the things, the number of things they had done wrong until they proved themselves. Yeah, but that, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, Google make their own products, so they're basically saying, don't, eat, don't use someone else's stuff, use their own stuff. It, 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 it. They do have a vested interest, I, I'll give you that. But it, it actually happened. Before it all actually happened when stuff. we recorded last time. And I just did not see how it mattered. I, I wow, I think it's a huge story. Okay, right. so no, uh, that's good that Glenn has written it up. What else? Uh, since then, they announced that they were they're basically they got a whole bunch of security experts in from places like Netflix, Uber, EA, and many other places. So they've built a board of CIOs, so chief chief information security officers, CISOs, chief information CISOs. security officers. Yeah, not yeah. CIOs. Uh, they've also improved the password requirements and included longer meeting IDs. They basically improved a whole bunch of defaults as well. Um, well, it is important to point out that the password requirement they changed was that they wouldn't let you have a password longer than eight characters, I think it was. But they were forcing you to have one, so... <laughs> yeah. Glass half full, glass half empty. And then embedding it in the URL. But <laughs> Well, it's now a situation where you can't uh, you can't just randomly sequentially numerically go through URLs anymore, which is a definite improvement. They've also removed the meeting ID from the title bar and all the visible places. So a screenshot. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. (laughs) That, Yeah, you could take a screenshot of it. Now you know the meeting ID of of every, you know, whoever took the screenshot. They also added a wonderful button called Secure Meeting. So basically when everyone arrives, you click this one button and no one else is allowed in. The lobby's closed. Everything just goes, nope, Ah. that's it. And then you just click the button again if you want to let someone else in. You know what this reminds me of? When I was a kid, I had a, a, a dog named Charlie and he was like the most misbehaved dog you've ever met in your life. So I took him to obedience training. I was 12 years old 
and he won the most improved award. Oh. <laughs> oh, he was still awful. <laughs> still, most improved, that's true. Yeah. yeah, Zoom, most improved. Yeah, just reading through, Glenn, has a nice summary here. So passwords required, meeting ID hidden, waiting room enabled. So that's now the default to have the waiting room. Yeah. Centralized security settings. So there's basically one nice, easy UI for getting at all the security stuff instead of being scattered about the UI. That's sensible. The meeting lock button I just described. And yeah, name change prevention. Because another thing people were doing, as well as just basic Zoom bombing, is that they were um, going in and then changing their name to rude words. So you can now just set it up that, no, no, once you're in, you're in, you don't get to change your name. Um, so you don't get by the lobby if you have a rude name, and then you can't change yeah. it later. Uh, then in terms of the privacy stuff, uh, we talked last time about how they were treating everyone whose email address was at the same domain as if they belonged to the same organization and oh, gave them yeah. extra rights. That is gone. Yeah. That is oh, good. good. Oh, yeah. good, good, good. There was also a bug found in the waiting room that has been patched. So that's how it's supposed to go. And the That's a tra- lot fixed in two weeks. That is a lot of work. Right, yeah. I mean, th- when they said they were pausing all development apart from these fixes, they must have meant it. Yeah. That's crazy. And also the traffic being routed to China thing. Um, they have... Apparently that was a bug in the routing algorithm, and the security industry does seem to believe them that's probably true because this stuff is a little bit too complex. Um, so they've simplified things quite a bit. If you have a free account, your traffic basically stays in the zone that you're in. So if you're if you sign up in America, then you only get to use American servers, and that may or may not be a good thing. Uh, but if you're a paid <laughs> customer, you get a little checkbox next to every region, and you basically get to decide where your data can and can't go. So if you're a European company, you might decide to untick United States and China, and if you're an American company, you might choose to untick those Europeans with their GDPR nonsense, and probably China too. <laughs> Um, so basically, yeah, it's it's kind of a nice approach, actually, to, to expose that as a clickable control panel for the paid people. And the free people basically just get defaulted into, if you're in China, you get the Chinese data centers. If you're in America, you get the American data centers. So it doesn't change who you can talk to. I could still set up a, a Zoom meeting and have you join it? You could. And then if we do that, then basically it's me, it's your your region and my region. And if we throw a Chinese person in, well, then... Right. Well, you're talking to someone in China. What did you think happened to your data? Oh, oh. So it's not the the data center is not the the originator. It's everyone on the call added together. All of those regions. I I've gone beyond what I read. Okay. Don't know. Um, no, I'm That's I'm not good. sure. I'm going to stop talking because then I might be wrong. <laughs> okay. So on the whole, I I was impressed. Um. You know, so I think basically the the math has gotten easier. We talked last time about how it had real value. Um, I got to experience that firsthand. And uh, we, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I tweeted about it, so it's not a secret that we lost my grandmother. And really, in these weird times, we ended up with a Zoom call with the Belgian and Irish branches of the family to be able to get together and organize things, and it was supremely valuable. Yeah. I'm I'm sure glad you said you wouldn't judge anybody if they chose it last right. time, right? Right, because I did say it was a value proposition, right? Here's the risks, here's the value, you choose. And the, it was just a no-brainer for me. It was like, yeah, this is needed, and I am prepared to accept these risks. And I didn't hesitate for a moment. Um, yeah, and even less now, probably. Yeah, and even less now. So they've continued. I won't take a shower right after using Zoom now. <laughs> 
Um, and there's also some nice sort of tips like ZDNet, you know, Zoom security, your meetings will be safe and secure if you do these 10 things. A lot of the 10 things have now become defaults, but there's still some good practices in there. Um, and then also Security Now actually did a good discussion on Zoom. And Steve Gibson is not known for being easy to please. And Steve was actually very positive about Zoom as well. Which Oh, wow. So there's an endorsement and a half, I think. Uh, we Another f- piece of follow-up then. Uh, we talked a while ago about Apple having re- working to release an open standard for how websites use SMS for... Um, two-factor authentication tokens and that they wanted to standardize it to make basically phishing harder. Um, Well, that standardization is continuing and uh, the Git commits on the project now have some contributions from Google. So that seems basically that Google are rowing in behind Apple on this. So this actually might happen. And you notice in my show notes, I called it Reducing the insecurity of SMS-based two-factor authentication. I do not want to say the phrase increasing the security, because that gives the wrong impression. Right. Uh, Facebook have abandoned their attempts to turn Lib- to make a cryptocurrency. They're not getting rid of the name Libra. Uh, they're just turning it into a plain old digital wallet like Apple Pay, Google Pay, PayPal, etc. Oh, so- okay. I knew they had abandoned... I'd heard they'd abandoned the cryptocurrency, which... It sure sounded like it was defeated an awfully long time ago. Didn't it just? Yeah, so that's that's probably good for all of our safety and security. That's that's taken care of. And all you have to do is decide if you want your real money with Facebook. Yeah, and my answer that's very straightforward. Nope. But, <laughs> you know. Uh, we, we, we mentioned last time there would be links in the show notes to the very, very grey issue of location privacy in times of a worldwide pandemic. I'm going to continue to not mention it, but just say that there are links in the show notes to more of that obvious, very difficult issue. So links in show notes. I have one deep dive for you today, which is also COVID related, but I do think we need to talk about this one because it's awfully misunderstood. And it's a tech slash privacy thing. It's very so it, tech. It fits in very well. It fits in extremely well because what we've been sort of linking in the show notes but not dwelling on is the difficult question of should governments be able to hoover up people's location data for the purposes of protecting people in a pandemic? There is an alternative approach, which is instead of a centralized system where everyone's phone is collecting their location data and sending it to some central authority who are then processing it, The alternative approach is a distributed system where every device is simply keeping track of every other device it comes near to. And then if one person finds out they're infected, you need a mechanism for telling everyone else you came close to. And Apple and Google have basically gone this second route. So it's not GPS based. It's entirely based on Bluetooth low energy, BTLE. And it's based on public key cryptography. Um, and uh, one-way hashing functions are really the, the core of it. And the way it works is that if you opt in, and it, they're guaranteeing it's going to be opt-in, so if you opt in, your phone will have a never-ever-ever-shared private key, which in the case of iOS will be shoved into the secure enclave and stuck in there, and that key will generate a daily token based on the current Unix date uh, and your private key, which never comes out. And then that daily token is used to generate short-term ephemeral tokens, 
And those tokens are broadcast over Bluetooth. And every time your Bluetooth MAC address changes, which it does quite regularly these days to stop tracking. So as you, it used to be that you could follow, you could track people permanently if you owned a supermarket by looking at their MAC addresses. But now our phones cycle their MAC addresses. Well, these IDs cycle in sync with the MAC address, which means that you can't even use this tracking to de-anonymize people's MAC addresses. And every phone just keeps beaming out these deterministic but unreversible tokens. And every phone you come physically close to records all the tokens it's seen. And if you test... be a lot of data? No, not really. Uh, Because these tokens are only a couple of K, right? And you keep them only for the incubation period of the virus. So every uh, two weeks or whatever, it drops off the back end of the file? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, okay. it's probably a database rather than a text file, but same concept, right? right? But yeah, purge the old data. But it's text, is what I mean. Yeah, because um, I was going to say, if you ride the new New York so- subway, that's that's a big number. But it's only people who come within six foot of you, so you you tend to go <laughs> yeah, but, into a carriage and sit down, right? Uh, in or York, stand, probably stand, yeah. but it, it's going to be twenty people, not two thousand. I suppose. Right? It's only the- out though. Yeah, but I mean, they're tiny pieces of data, so it, it's... Yeah, yeah, it, okay. So it's then, collecting it, these tokens, these, these not even, they don't even have to be anonymized because they're already anonymous when they start, right? Right, and they're ephemeral, which is very important. So they're constantly changing so that your same phone does not have the same token for hours or days on end, because otherwise you could track people with it, right? Even if it was, then it'd be pseudonymous, but they're just, they're ephemeral, okay. uh, but deterministic. So if you then test positive, you can recalculate every single token your phone has emitted in the time where you were infectious. And those get published to a local server located in the geographic area that you are in. So the idea would be that countries or regions would run these servers. And then every other user who's opted in, their phone will check in once a day and check their list of everyone who they have seen against the list of known infected tokens. And then you will have no idea who, you will have no idea where, you will only know what day you saw the token that is now marked as being infected. And you will then know that you are in contact and therefore you should get tested. So it'll tell you you were within six feet of someone who later tested positive. Correct. So people have to get tested. All the, yes, absolutely. This entire system is based on the concept that if you have testing, then this allows you to do contact tracing without having to have detectives literally backtracking people's movements. Okay, so this is something Apple and, and Google have developed together and would be automatically on everybody's phones or you opt in? Uh, okay, so yes, yes, yes. Um, ish. So initially, this is going to be an API released in May so that developers of apps, there's lots of countries working on apps so that the National Health Service in the UK is working on an app. Uh, there's rumors that the European Commission are working on a European on an EU-wide app, which of course doesn't include Britain anymore. Um, different countries are thinking about doing apps. So those developers, rather than each of them reinventing the wheel, they could use Apple and Google's API. Um, which would give them then interoperability across OSs and so forth. Uh, but also Apple are, and Google are both working on incorporating this into core iOS and core Android so that you don't even need to have developers incorporate copy the code into their own apps. The 
the, the apps could simply lev- leverage core OS functionality. Like you have core audio for doing sound stuff. You don't have core COVID for COVID tracking. Um, and the reason that you send the countries involved is to run the server. So you would have the National Health Service in the UK running the server for the UK. And the other very important role these national organizations would have is providing a mechanism for validating tests. Otherwise, you could do the world's worst trolling, right? You wander around a crowded area and then you click a button and say, aha, I'm positive, and scare the bejesus out of thousands of people and waste tests. So it will be up to the, the governments to have a system for validating. And there's all sorts of things have been proposed, like you just get a barcode to scan with a cryptographic code that matches your test results or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of very easy ways of doing that. Uh, but it would basically this be up to the... It's highly technical for the user. Well, no, because from the user's point of view... Me. No, no, no. So from the user's point of view, they would have one button they push once to say, turn it on. And then if they test positive, they would have one button to push that says, ah, bugger. And they would then be told to enter either a pin that they were given with their test result or to scan the piece of paper that says you're positive. So that's still um, highly technical. Uh, According to a report in 2017 on TechCrunch, 51% of people don't download any apps in a month, according to Comscore. Uh, you know, right. m- a, a vast swath of humanity doesn't add apps at all. And you're saying, oh, all they got to do is install this app and then click this button and then do this and then do this. Well, okay, well, remember, it, this is coming into core Android trivial. and iOS. But it is coming, right. So initially it's going to be available for third-party apps, but it is coming into the core OS. So that even that goes away. So, so I just, asked you if it was opt-in and you said, yes, this is not opt-in if it's in core OS. No, 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 no. Okay, but, but it won't be turned on. You have to opt-in. It will not turn on automatically. You are not going to have this happen. This is not going to be happening unless you agree to have it happen. So you have to launch. You have or to you install have to click the app yes. that, comes, that comes from the National Health Service, and then you have to uh, uh, click a button to opt-in. No, 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 no. We do not know that that is the case at all. It could equally be like when you turn on your iPhone after the update that pushes it into the core OS. You know the way you get the pop-up that says, do you agree to turn on location data? Do you agree to turn on COVID tracking? Yes, no. Okay. I was reflecting the way you had described it. Well, no, so I said step- that, that it sounds, it, that it sounded technical. Well, phase one, it'll be in the app you have to go fetch, but phase two, it'll be in the core OS. And then, it, then Apple and Google have the ability to make it very, very seamless. Yeah, I, as I've heard this described, my my first impression is that, sure, all the nerds will be reporting this, but there's also an age component if you go that way too. I mean, I know I'm unusual in being ancient and highly technical. So if you think about normal people, I, I worry that it's it's going to be a little too much, but maybe they can do it in a way that it will be obvious that people will do it. I think there's a lot of work know. could be done to make it human friendly. But the other thing to stress is if you think that this is a panacea that will solve the epidemic in one fell swoop, you've missed the point. This is a brick in a large wall. It, this yeah, doesn't. I, I didn't say I thought it was a. No, no, I'm just, no, no. I, I didn't say you were saying. I wasn't arguing with you. I was just oh, okay. making the important <laughs> point that 
I know there are some people grasping at this as the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Okay, okay. And no. <laughs> no, it's, it's a useful tool, and we shall need many useful tools. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm fascinated by this whole concept of contact tracing, because, you know, if, if you just say on a regular day before you were locked in your house, could you accurately describe every person you came within six feet of? Not well, even close, right? Okay, and but it's really so, so having feet. a technical solution like this is much better than relying on Bart to remember. Oh yeah, I went into this shop and looked at a new hat. You know. Yes. No. Absolutely. You're you're absolutely right. And you don't have to with all of this stuff. You don't have to get to a hundred percent. You just have to get it so that, on average, one person gives it to less than one person on average. You mean in order to keep it stable, uh, not overwhelming the medical system? Well, no, if you keep the O number below one, it's not just not overwhelming the mes- messaging system. It means that the, the epidemic doesn't spread. If on average, if three people get it and only two, if three people are ill and only two people become ill, then you forward that over time and it goes to zero. Oh, you said one. You mean less I said than less one. than. I said, no, I said less oh, than. Oh, the second. Okay. Yeah. So on average, it just has to get to less than one, not zero. Which is, thank goodness, because getting to zero is impossible. But, you know, averages are, we can work with averages. We can, you know. Right. Don't have to be perfect. Anyway, what I'm fascinated by is that this this makes it possible to do, to use our technology without destroying all of our privacy. Which is kind of the path they were going down at first, right? <laughs> yeah. If, if so, big, 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 big names like Apple and Google hadn't provided the technical privacy protecting solution, we would have ended up having a great big argument about our GPS data. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm in, it will be intrigued to see whether there's any recognition over time from politicians of the value of these companies being as big as they are, these big tech companies. And and oddly enough, this came into my head, and it, the, this is going to sound like the strangest thing you've ever heard, but I heard um, Zuckerberg say something absolutely heartwarming and brilliant at the same time. He was on CNN with his wife, Dr. Chan, I think is her last name, and they uh, he was talking about how they were able to work from home quite quickly because and have their staff work from mm-hmm. home quite quickly because they're software engineers. You know, it was an obvious thing. So yeah. that's one of the reasons like San Francisco has had zero deaths and which is astonishing because it's this tight, small little community with packed with people. And he said, yeah, we were able to just shut down. It was real easy because we're software engineers. And you know what else? When we start letting people go back to work, we should be last because we can keep working from home for a really long time. It's not that big a deal for us. So you should have the essential services go back and first. The people who can't make a living unless they go to work, we should be last. And I was like, oh, man. And you think about how many humans he controls of whether they go out into public. It was it was I'm getting chills describing it. It was maybe it's okay that these huge companies exist and they have, you know, near monopolies on things. I'm not sure I go quite that far, but I'm impressed. I will, I will <laughs> praise him for that statement immensely. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I'm jumping, you know, for any good news. Yeah, but, no, I'll uh, take it. I'll take it. I'll take yeah, it. I, I never thought I'd say something nice about Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, no, he's dead right. Couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. If you're interested in more about Don't say this, dead right. 
Sorry. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> spot on. He's spot on. Spot Eric. on. There you go. Um, if you're interested in a, a better description to, to my attempts, um, you have two choices. The Reset podcast did a wonderful coverage on it. Not a technical deep dive, but a sort of a big picture understanding it sort of way um, and short. Or if you want to deep dive, that's still relatively human friendly. Uh, Steve Gibson also does it. That's also linked in the show notes. And I have linked the specific timestamp in the very, very long episode of Security Now. So that's at an hour and 19 minutes in. They finally start on that. So that is linked in the show notes. Great. Now, action alerts. This is the bit everyone has to pay attention to. Um, It was Patch Tuesday. It or a big one, including a whole bunch of zero days under active exploit being patched in Windows. So Windows people definitely, definitely, definitely patch. Meanwhile, you know what's cool? All Microsoft um, computers of you know reasonable vintage can get these updates. Google. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let's not go there. Um. Critical bug in Google Chrome. I don't usually mention every Chrome update, but this one is actually being actively exploited. So it's actually probably worth turning Chrome off and turning it on again so it can do its update dance. And the same is true of Firefox, uh, which we had told you to do last time. And there's been another remote code execution. So uh, time to do that again for Firefox people. Linksys are doing a forced password reset on a whole bunch of their customers, um, but it's only customers who use a feature called Linksys Smart Wi-Fi, which is basically cloud management for your router. And what seems to have happened is that people were were using passwords for their routers that they were also using elsewhere, and the many million data breaches that have been out there resulted in a bunch of those passwords being tried on Linksys and found to work and then people's routers being taken over and their DNS settings replaced with malicious DNS servers that were then doing man-in-the-middle attacks on the poor unfortunate users of those routers. I hate to say it again, but that's kind of clever. It's darn clever, evil people. (laughs) Stop being clever. So don't reuse (laughs) passwords is really what it comes down to. Um, And as strange as it sounds, Apple have released a critical security update to Xcode which is actually a patch to Git. Um, there was an issue with how the Xcode version of Git parsed some data that would could result in passwords going places they shouldn't, and that's generally a bad thing. Oh, wow. Update your Xcode. Hmm. Uh, worthy warnings, then. These may or may not apply to you. Um, security researchers are warning of a new type of threat on the app store which they have given a cute name to because if you don't give it a cute name it doesn't count so we should now all panic about fleeceware and i say we should all panic ironically basically when apple make you twice say yes to a subscription and they tell you really clearly next to the buttons what your the terms of that subscription are read it at least once of those two times apple will show it to you Uh, Because there are apps out there which have high recurring fees over a short time period. So a weekly in-app purchase for $30. That's that's a good way to lose money quickly, and hence the term fleeceware. Um, Ah. It's not, they're not lying to you, like it's in your face. They're just sort of hoping you won't look. So look. Right, like $30 that might, you're assuming that might be per year or something. (laughs) 
exactly. So look at both the dollar amount and the period. Um, okay. And at any time, you can go to your My Account bit in iTunes, and you can also get at it from the control panel in your iPhone, and you can see a list of all your subscriptions. So, you know, go in there and have a look if your credit card is suddenly showing charges you weren't expecting. This isn't a bug. No. This no, it's not. It, they're squishy really organic bit. people. Yeah. So, and and I can't imagine that there's actually a way Apple could stop that in any way, saying, okay, if it's any more than X dollars per per Y period, but that would be that'd be too that's an analog scale. <laughs> well, right, and some things are more valuable than others. Right, right. You know? So yeah, I mean that's a really hard thing to sorry. No, I was just saying, pay attention. Yes, precisely. That really that's the takeaway. Um TikTok users beware. There is a bug has been found on their servers. Uh, hackers can swap their video for your video. Uh, one would assume that will be patched quickly, but mm. yeah. So a TikTok video may not be from who it seems to be from. Um, Naked Security are warning that the scam of so-called sextortion emails are back. It's a lie, right? So the way this works is the bad guys go to one of the quadzillion password dumps that we know exist they find your email address and your password they send you an email saying we know your password look here it is and by the way your webcam was on when you were doing something naughty and we're now you pay us a bitcoin and a half or we'll tell everyone it's a scam they just got your password out of a data breach if you're using that password in lots of places you should probably change it (laughs) but any places yeah but they're, it's a scam. Don't fall for it. And finally, there is a fairly active phishing campaign targeting GitHub users, trying to get them to sign into a website with a f- very convincing-looking fake GitHub. And what they actually do is an OAuth to login, so they end up actually getting credentials to to, to log into your GitHub as if in the same sort of way as login with Facebook works. And so they can really abuse that to inject their own SSH keys into your GitHub account. And that that will be a really good way for them then to distribute malware as you. So they're piggybacking on your reputation to send their malware out to the world. So be very careful if you're a GitHub user. So just pay attention is what you mean? (laughs) Yeah, just pay attention, really. I mean, that's kind of what the worthy warnings bit always comes down to, really. Watch out. You know, heads up. Yeah. Notable news then. This one has a fire extinguisher icon. It's one of two fire extinguishers for today. Contrary to some fake news that may have actually been maliciously spread, there is zero evidence of any security problems whatsoever in the app House Party. That's not to say there aren't bugs in it. It's software written by humans. But the claims that if you sign into House Party, it'll steal your password for Netflix, that's hooey. No evidence has been found to back that up at all. It appears to be a smear campaign against House Party. So to remind people, this is a tool that allows you to watch a Netflix show together with your friends. No, it's one of the things you can use it for. Apparently, it's also just a plain old... um, You can also just use it like Zoom just to have a house party, just to do video chat, apparently. Okay. Hadn't heard of that part. Haven't, Haven't used it, but apparently it does that. Um, 
a whole collection of stories here, but social media companies are continuing to respond to their increased importance in people's lives in the current time. Uh, TikTok, actually, so yes, they have a bit of a security bug they need to fix, but they've also done something which I think is really cool. Rather than traditional parental controls, they've added something called family pairing, which basically attaches your parents' account to your kids' account, and it doesn't there are controls that the parent can put in place, but for the most part, it's about transparency. So the parent can see what the kid is doing. The kid knows the parent can see what they're doing. And it's sort of encouraging responsible computing. And it's just, it's a very positive approach to introducing kids to social media in a controlled way. And given TikTok's demographic, I just thought it was really good to see a social media company thinking, company thinking that way. So I, I was yeah. kind of impressed. Yeah, that's neat. Yeah, WhatsApp have put a limit on message forwarding to try curb the spread of COVID-19 misinformation. That's probably good. They've done that before. And I, yep. I find that so interesting that apparently one of the ways misinformation spreads is by I get it from one person and I spread it to five, who spread it to 10, who spread it to a thousand. That's It goes viral, as we used to say before that scared the pants off us. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and so they you're right, they did it before, they reduced it, but they've reduced it even further. I believe it's now to you have to now forward it to one person at a time. So you can do oh, it wow. manually to as many people as you want, but it's one at a time. So if you genuinely want to send it to fifty people, okay then. But you're gonna have to work for it. And that, that doesn't scale to the point of ballooning misinformation, obviously. It's interesting. Does that not spread information as well as misinformation? I don't know if they have some sort of filtering for keywords or whether they're just blocking all forwarding, but generally speaking... I'm sure they'd have to. But forwarding to lots and lots of people at once, is that really a positive thing? (laughs) Yeah, it's been shown that, you know, we tend to forward things that hit our emotions and they tend to be things that maybe you wouldn't have thought would be true. Well, it's probably because they're not. Yeah. And when you get forwarded stuff, do you really read it? I Mm. tend not to. Yeah. When I'm mentally triaging my email, if it starts with the letters FWD colon or FW colon, its importance goes thump. I look for uh, how many indent levels there are are that usually it came from uh, AOL users. (laughs) Yeah. Or how many re's there are in front of it. Re, FW, re, 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 FW, FW, re. I have to scroll over to find the end of the blue bars. Um, Where was I? Um, Facebook are taking... Oh, sorry, no. Google are blocking 18 million coronavirus scam emails a day. Oh, my gosh. Are you serious? Yeah. So they are successfully blocking that many. And I am sure there are still scam emails getting through. So imagine how much worse it would be if they weren't succeeding in that level of blocking. Oh, yeah. Facebook are taking aggressive steps to squash 5G conspiracy theories that could cause physical harm. Yeah, it's kind of astonishing, some of the stuff that's been going on against this 5G madness, this notion that 5G caused COVID. It's like, what planet are you people from? Uh. Anyway. Uh, that, a related story. I heard that one. That's amazing. 
Yeah, I more have a very good related story where they interview an actual 5G expert to debunk a whole bunch of 5G hooey. Um, so if you want some facts on 5G, it's a good read and it's iMore, so it's of course well written. Uh, and Facebook are adding a quiet mode to iOS to help you spend less time on Facebook while you're in lockdown. It's... Oh, wow. Yeah, of all the things for Facebook to do, I'm like, wow, I like huh. this. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's all the social media stuff. Um, other news, then, Echo Bee have announced two-factor authentication to secure your smart home. Seems mm. less important when you're always in it, but hey, I guess <laughs> still useful. Well, you can still have your heat turned up and blast you out of your house or freeze you out of your house, I suppose. That's if a fair you're there, point. And if you're stuck inside the house, yeah, if you're stuck inside the house and the lights are blinking on and off and the bloody thing is possessed, that's probably worse, actually. So, yeah, no, this is good. This is good. Actually, I'm pretty sure there's a black mirror with that happening. That sounds, if there isn't, there should be. We've just written one. <laughs> uh, another fire extinguisher to wrap up this section of the show notes. Um, Twitter got a little bit ahead of themselves and sent out a warning that Firefox users should be aware that the local cache was, access, was storing too much of their private information, like their direct messages, and it could compromise their privacy, and Firefox is terrible. Uh, yeah, turns out Twitter were sending the wrong HTTP headers. They were not sending the header that says, don't cache this. So okay. that would turn out to be very embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but really, for regular people, if you use Firefox and you use Twitter and you, you vaguely remember hearing something and you're worried, unless you were doing so in a public internet kiosk, you're fine. And given current realities, I believe the opportunity to have done so is limited. Okay. So a whole big non-story. you're in place. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually, that's all I have in my show notes. Um, strangely quiet. All the, all the hackers basically just seem to be trying to spoof people with COVID and nothing else. So I guess. Oh, well, keeping mm. them busy. <laughs> yeah. So I do have one palate cleanser, which again is, whether I like it or not, somewhat COVID related, but <laughs> we always hear this phrase garbage in, garbage out, and we know that our statistics are really, really not like very good at the moment, right? We have lots of partial information that people are extrapolating forward. Don't spend too much time panicking about it, because as the XKCD comic so well points out, garbage isn't linear. So a precise number plus a precise number is a slightly less precise number. Okay. Uh, a precise number multiplied by a precise number is a slightly less precise number, but a precise number plus garbage is garbage. A precise <laughs> number multiplied by garbage is garbage. The square root of garbage is actually less bad garbage. However, <laughs> garbage squared is worse. <laughs> okay. Uh, a precise number to the power of garbage is much worse garbage, which is definitely true. Um... Yeah, anyway, it's it's a whole point. Basically, the point being Wait, garbage. Them, I don't follow one of them. It says garbage minus garbage is much worse garbage. I'm not sure That's how that works. Interesting. Yeah. That wouldn't. So it, it's not the same garbage necessarily is probably why. Yeah. So it's like you don't even know what garbage it is. Yes. If it's one kind of garbage minus another kind of garbage, right? And I love the last one. Garbage multiplied by zero equals a precise number. Yeah, zero. <laughs> oh, I like the second to last one. Precise number divided by garbage minus garbage 
is much worse garbage possible division by zero. By zero. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this might be my favorite uh, XKD in a long time. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, have you seen the hover text yet? Garbage in, garbage out should not be taken to imply any sort of conservation law limiting the amount of garbage produced. <laughs> so brilliant. Well, this was good. I feel much more well-informed. I do not feel terrified. Um, and I'm sure happy that Zoom is getting its act together. That really makes me happy. Yeah, I we, we love can, it. Yeah, we can summarize today's episode as, hey, those social media companies are actually working hard in our benefit for once. B, read stuff before you click it. C, update all of your apps. That's it. There you go. It's all covered. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks, Bart. We will talk to you in a couple of weeks. And until then, stay patched so you stay secure. So normally I have the live show with me and uh, they get to listen to the very end of the show. But right after I dropped in the security bits recording into my uh, recording application, my Mac shut down, just simply turned itself off. It did that once a couple of days ago, and for some reason I forgave it that, but uh, I think maybe I'm going to be having a walk to that uh, that box of sadness here pretty soon, because that's not good. Well, anyway, I didn't end up losing anything in the recording, so that's the good news. So you have a full show here, a lively show, but that is going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. We've talked about becoming a patron. You can do that at podfeed.com slash Patreon. If you want to do a one-time donation, podfeed.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeed.com slash Facebook. And our Slack community is always hopping. Podfeed.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, which is always lively, is much more lively now that everybody's in lockup because nobody has anything to do. It's lots of fun. Head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. You might get to see me crash and burn, but you can always join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.